3: Even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life.
4: No purchase necessary. BTW, Revoid, Prohibited by Law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
0: Welcome back to TV's Top Five, the Hollywood Reporters TV Podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as usual by our chief TV critic and my partner in crime, Mr. Daniel Feinberg. What's shaking, Dan?
1: Oh, just getting my menorah ready for Hanukkah, Leslie. How about you?
0: The same. I am ready for this break. And, you know, we should mention right off the top that this is our supersized year end episode and we will be taking the week of Christmas off. Our next episode after this one will be January 3rd.
1: So savor these precious moments. They have to last you 10 plus days a little bit like the miracle of the oil that brings us Hanukkah. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Dan, I love you. Please never change. I'm so grateful to have spent so much of my year podcasting alongside you, my friend. It
1: does feel like we've been sitting in front of these microphones for 52 straight weeks.
0: Uh, it's a, a good problem to have if it's even a problem at all. Well, let's what do you say we segue into the final headlines of the year?
1: Bring it on. Up first in headlines, Hallmark. we're sorry apologies hallmark found itself in a little hot water this week after pulling an ad featuring a lesbian wedding and then quickly putting the ad with the lesbian wedding back on television and saying oops we made a mistake yeah if you wish to get more background on this particular mistake we strongly strongly recommend that you go back and listen to our interview with hallmark and crown media's bill abbott from november 15th it's Really an interesting interview, even if it's also an interview that points to a lot of the problems they've had in the last yeah, week. Yeah,
0: and I asked him specifically about holiday programming featuring same-sex couples, and his answer was, well, just go back and listen. This, I think you could tell from my tone. And that this wasn't, wasn't
1: even programming. This was about accepting money from a sponsor, yeah. one of whose three ads featured a lesbian wedding, which is really, given that it's, you know, legal in our country. It's, it's just a wedding. It's just a wedding. <laughs> Bizarre.
0: Yeah. All right. I'm going to dial it down. I don't know if I can with this one. This next one, though. Well, up next, American Gods remains a mess in season three, caller Me Surprised. This time, Orlando Jones and fellow cast member Musa Kresh were let go from the stars drama's third season as new showrunner Chick Egley, the show's fourth showrunner, I should note, shifts to focus on the next chapter of Neil Gaiman's book. Jones says he was told his character was, quote, bad for black America. Fremantle, the producers of the show, said Jones's option was not picked up because the show... As Maureen Ryan and I reported last year, was focusing more on the events of the book. You should definitely go back and read. This is just us plugging other things that we've written here, Dan. But you should go back and and read the story that Maureen Ryan and I reported last year, focusing on the, the complete and utter mess that season two was. And part of our reporting revealed that Orlando Jones actually helped write the show and keep it back on track after the third showrunner was basically sidelined for being, well, you go back and read the story. I won't describe it here.
1: In other news, effort this week uh, to find a new home for critical favorite Lodge 49. The efforts have failed. Uh, The series creator said that they made efforts and unfortunately they were unable to make anything work. We've discussed several times on this podcast the particular difficulties facing this show finding a new home. But you can also see it was in my top 10. It was actually in my top five for the year. So I am sad to see Lodge 49 go, but... The two seasons that exist are still entirely easily watchable, and you should check them out and feel bad that you didn't watch them sooner.
0: And they will be on Hulu in 2020. Elsewhere in renewal news, Star Trek Picard has been picked up for a second season ahead of its premiere. The same is true for Netflix's Emmy-nominated short-form comedy special, one of my favorites of the year. Over at Sci-Fi, Van Helsing has been picked up for a fifth and final season. Fifth. Fifth.
1: We need to repeat that. There is a show on sci fi called Van Helsing that has been on for four seasons and got a fifth.
0: It's currently airing, Dan. I think the finale was this week.
1: Whatever you say. At some yeah. point, it was run by Neil LeBute, Neil also known as the creative force behind Netflix's The Island.
0: Over at Own and some other good news. Critical darling David Makes Man will return for a second season too. Dan, this is some good news here.
1: It is some good news, and I feel like there's a podcast segment you could probably uh, plug there too.
0: Definitely go back and find our interview with showrunner D. Harris Lawrence about her experience on the on the Own drama. This was her first time showrunning, and she has since gotten hired as the showrunner of CBS's All Rise. She will return for season two of David Makes Man and have two shows. For, so for a first-time showrunner, quite a year for for D. Harris Lawrence. Great interview. If you can go back and find it on on uh, TV Top Five.
1: Netflix has also canceled a show that you didn't know existed called Daybreak.
0: I know. I, I've written about that. <laughs> I couldn't. Matthew Broderick starred in it. I could not tell you what it was about though. You and should, I've written about it. You should have times. read
1: my review of Netflix's Daybreak.
0: <laughs> I probably did at some point, Dan.
1: In any case, it was a show that existed. Sadly, as a show that no longer exists.
0: And in other news. Are Some great reporting by colleagues, Bryn Sandberg and Kim Masters, revealed the true story behind Ruth Wilson's departure from Showtime's The Affair. It was a tremendously reported piece from Bryn and Kim. It's an excellent read. You should go find the story on THR.com. But uh, in a larger sense, yeah, it's a depressing read.
1: And with that, on to our top five. Number one.
0: Leading off, let's take a look back at the year's highs and lows in the streaming wars. This year, Disney Plus, Apple TV Plus, both launched their subscription services to varying degrees of success, and Netflix suffered a few big blows, losing friends in the office and had a few subscriber losses. Over at NBC Universal and Warner Media, both companies are prepping streaming platforms of their own to launch in 2020. Joining us this week for a larger look at the year in streaming is THR's digital editor Natalie Jarvie. Welcome back to the show, Natalie. Thanks for having me. So let's start with where everybody stands at the end of the year. Obviously, we just talked about Netflix losing some key properties heading into 2020, and obviously they had some quarters that weren't great. But at the end of the year, how does, how does Netflix look? to start?
2: I mean, Netflix is still the largest streamer out there, right? So you can't discount them. They uh, currently have 158 million subscribers worldwide. Uh, we'll find out how they ended the year in January. And, um, you know, they're they're still massive and they're going to be really hard to take down. I think, you know, they are growing substantially internationally. Growth in the U.S. has slowed pretty significantly, but they, they still have a lot of runway as they uh, kind of bulk up their offering in countries around the world where they've been a little less uh, robust in recent years. And they're still the leading spender. Absolutely. I mean, they uh, finally disclosed that they spent 15 or will spend 15 billion in con- on content Jesus. this year. <laughs> 15 billion. Yeah, that's say that that's for loud. both originals <clears throat> and uh, licensed programming. That's massive. And, uh, you know, yes, they're losing some key properties. And they also, you know, have seen some like library, um, you know, film content go away from from Disney. But, you know, you turn on Netflix and there's still a whole lot there that I've certainly not watched. So I think there's a lot of room for people to still find things to watch on Netflix.
1: Well, when they have those conversations, though, about the small declines domestically, how is it justified by people who are trying to make it sound like it's not a serious problem?
2: Yeah, I mean, so Netflix will say that, you know, they they experience churn when people leave the service, that that happens, uh, that, you know, they did have a price increase this year. And so it's very common for people to leave when the price goes up. The U.S. is the market where they're able to have the highest price price. Per subscriber. So, you know, they are able to extract a lot more money from the people that they have. You also have to look at the fact that Netflix has been in the US for a long time. They're reaching market saturation. You know, they're going to start slowing down because. The people who have wanted to sign up for Netflix have probably signed up for Netflix by this point, so it um, you know gives them a lot less uh, runway than these other countries where you know maybe they haven't been there as long. Uh, there might be smaller international streaming services that they're up against. So they recently just released some new international figures to show that look, you know, we're growing internationally, and you know these other markets are really key for us going forward.
0: How has Disney Plus? Or has Disney Plus taken a bite out of Netflix?
2: Yeah, so I mean, I think you have to acknowledge that people are going to sign up for multiple of these services, and it's not going to be, uh, you know, black and white, either or scenario. There was an analyst report that came out this week that said um, that about a million subscribers vacated Netflix for Disney Plus. Now, I don't know, you know, you can't put a whole lot of weight in that. That was based on a really small sample of U.S. streaming customers. You know, sure, some people are probably going to look at their, um, you know, monthly bills and say, ah, do I need all of these different streaming services? But, you know, Netflix is still expected to hit the projections that they offered at the end of uh, the third quarter uh, heading into the fourth quarter of the year.
1: And what kind of numbers so far has been? Disney Plus given out and has Apple TV Plus said a word.
2: Yeah, well, so you know, let's if we think about the two big services that launched this year, Disney Plus and Apple. You know, Disney out of the gate had 10 million signups on day one. Now, not all those people are going to be people who will remain lasting subscribers. Uh, as many people had uh, promotions, there were free trials and and different things, but that's significant right out of the gate. Disney Plus was a major player and will remain a major player, and they're right now available in a very limited uh, number of markets and will continue to roll out internationally. So they will become a much more formidable competitor to Netflix as they become more widely available around the rest of the world. So, you know, it, it will be really interesting to see with Disney, you know, they've had a, a smaller slate of original programming. The Mandalorian has been their key driver, certainly has helped that Baby Yoda memes have been everywhere all over the internet. Special um, plug to,
1: uh, to THR cover Muppet Baby Baby Yoda. So. Uh, <laughs>
2: <laughs> indeed, baby New Year, indeed. baby Yoda. <laughs> um, but, you know, they when The Mandalorian ends here soon, it will be interesting to see how they follow that up. What comes next? You know, they've got a pipeline, but Mandalorian has been the thing people are talking about when it comes to Disney originals. So that's that's kind of what I'm watching there.
0: Yeah, and they have a Marvel show, the first of the, all their Marvel Cinematic Universe spin-off, TV spinoffs coming in 2020, but I believe it's later in the year. And then they've got you know, whatever uh, the the Gina Rodriguez shows, a diary of a female president, which I think is now just called diary of a president future coming president. future president. But it's also like that. That's not tied into a big enough IP. That's a pure original idea. Who knows if that's going to be anywhere near the same kind of interest as I also just you know. wonder
1: if because we are um, no offense to all of us um, old. If our sort of social media footprint doesn't allow us to, for example, know how invested people are in High School Musical, the series, the series, the musical, the series, the special, because, (laughs) you know, like I totally get the feeling it's possible that there is an audience out there of 15 year olds who are loving that. And I just would not know and that.
2: Right. There's well, probably an little... <laughs> audience of twenty-something year olds who watched the original movie that are watching it too. Now, I do think you can look at you know the memification of these series and see that you know the Mandalorian and Baby Yoda have kind of captured the uh, social media conversation in a way that you know High School Musical has not. Um, but uh, you're one hundred percent right. And listen, let's not discount the Lizzie McGuire uh, show that's coming out. Also there are a lot here, yeah. of young women that will be very eager for that. I've been seeing a lot. Lot of my friends doing some re-watches of the original Lizzie McGuire on Disney Plus, so you know Disney is looking to build a broad audience here, and and you know as they start to ramp up with these other shows, hopefully they can capture some of the audience that maybe haven't been as interested in the Mandalorian or you know back catalog Marvel movies to this point. And there's right. just
1: no way of us knowing though about Apple TV Plus and whether any of that is a success, other than Golden Globe nominations for the Morning Show. So
2: yay! Indeed, I mean it'll be really interesting to see. They've given no indication that they're going to release numbers, so. So, you know, we'll see if they do. But again, it's interesting, you know, Apple TV Plus has a fairly small slate of originals at launch. now they're going to be ramping up more. But, you know, there's not that back catalog content to keep people engaged with the service when they're not watching an original. So, you know, it is hard to know kind of how much usage they're really seeing of that um, service at launch. I know I watch... The Morning Show, when it comes out once a week, I have yet to, to sample a lot of the other programming, you know, in the kind of the weekly cadence. And, and I'll be curious to see how other people are yeah. responding to that. If people are kind of sampling a lot of the Apple shows or, you know, kind of going in for the one thing that looks appealing to them and, you know, not really checking out the
1: like, rest. Again, it's our bubble, but have you seen a single person mention C.? in a month. Have you seen a Not outside
2: per- of how bad it is, no. A
1: servant premiered and a p- couple people initially were like, ooh, cre- creepy doll baby, but I haven't seen a person mention it in weeks. Yeah,
0: I mean, I think Apple, the entire conversation between Disney Plus and Apple, Baby Yoda has stolen the show. I mean, yeah. if anyone anticipated, you know, I, I don't think I could have anticipated Jennifer Anderson and Reese Witherspoon doing a TV show being trumped by a, you know, what, three-foot puppet.
2: Yeah. No, it's it's really interesting and... um. You know that conversation is is really important, and even the morning show. I mean, there was a lot of talk about it in the first few weeks, but I feel like that has has died down a fair amount too. Except for those people who pop up once a week to say, "Hey, morning show's getting better than those early episodes." Um, but or you know, critics
1: were wrong about morning show, and here's why critics hated it at first, and why they're wrong. <laughs>
2: yeah, I mean, the the, the the rollout.
0: I think you know, in a larger point here, to Dan, with what you're saying. Apple's rollout left a lot to be desired, and then when you look at it compared to Disney Plus, it was like you know comparing apples to Ferraris, (laughs) right? Not that there's anything wrong with an apple, but like Disney's got a Ferrari, right? Like they have literally they launched with this massive library; they've got everything, and then on top of it, 600 episodes of The Simpsons, and by the way, Baby Yoda and a new Star Wars show. I mean, in the larger sense, when you look back at these rollouts, how much do you think Apple's strategy? backfired for them. Like, was that harmful for them? Was their, their initial press strategy good or bad? Or, and how much is that having? Are, are they paying for that now?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wonder how much of a, a clear strategy they had to some extent going into this. I mean, launching a service from scratch is not easy. And yeah, they brought in a lot of experts. But, you know, it, it's it, Apple is a tech company at the end of the day. And this was a very new type of product launch for them. And, you know, I think you're right. Apple approached the launch of TV Plus like they would approach the launch of an iPhone. And that doesn't necessarily work in in filmed entertainment, whether it's TV shows or movies. So, you know, they well, it'll be interesting to see if they learn from this initial slate and roll out and adapt and, you know, kind of tweak how they're doing things going forward. Um, I think it's still a little too early to tell what what kinds of lessons they will take away from it and, and where they will take it.
0: Yeah. You know, in a larger sense now, broadening things out, we haven't talked about Hulu or Amazon at all or even YouTube and Facebook Watch, which both you know continue to be things that exist. Where do the rest of the streamers stand, you know, to close out the year?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I think you can still look at, you know, Netflix, Amazon Prime and Hulu as kind of those three big existing services. Amazon, you know, can compete with Netflix on a global level, but the purpose of Amazon is very different than the purpose of Netflix. Amazon Prime is just there to help, you know, get people into the Prime ecosystem and encourage them to, you know, spend more money on toilet paper or, you know, whatever it is um, that you're going to buy on Amazon Prime. So, you know, it, it, I think that they're approaching their content differently. And for a long time, it was really easy to, to just kind of pit Apple or sorry, Amazon and Netflix against each other, but more and more as these services mature and as the market expands, I I start to look at Amazon as just a very different kind of business. They you know, they have some really critically acclaimed shows and shows that have done quite well. Easily
0: the show of the year in fleabag, Dan and Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which is just, was just renewed, obviously, you know, part of a big part of Amazon's slate. But those were, of course, greenlit by Roy Price.
2: Mm-hmm. But in general, the, the service feels smaller than Netflix because they they aren't doing as much and as big of a kind of global stage as Netflix is doing. And, you know, I think we're still waiting to see a lot of the Jen Salke programming come to fruition and see what that looks like and how that changes the brand. It's very interesting that a lot of the shows Fleabag and Marvelous Mrs. Maisel that would have seen a lot of success. Kind of did come from that earlier regime, and you know now that they're finding success with those shows, you know how how much will they want to deviate from that in you know their hunt for the kind of big genre you know IP like Lord of the Rings, right? Which is
0: coming in at least twenty (laughs) twenty one. Yeah,
1: which is coming when it actually shows up on my Netflix. I believe it's twenty twenty one. Rather on my Amazon queue, and no sooner does it feel as if. I mean Leslie mentioned YouTube and Facebook Watch. Does it feel as if they're being kind of left behind in their efforts? I mean YouTube did have one of the big biggest breakout streaming hits of the year in on becoming a god in Central Florida except oops it was on Showtime. Yeah. So are they even still players in the conversation or are they like Crackle at this point?
2: Well, YouTube is, is not a player. They And they have actively backed out of being a player. They've largely said they're not going to develop new scripted originals. Uh, they're focusing on unscripted content, a lot of educational programming. Uh, and most of their programming is now um, coming out from behind the paywall. So they still have this YouTube premium product where you can get ad-free videos, but most of the originals are now also rolling out with ads because you know what guess what more people are watching them when they don't have to pay 10 bucks a month surprise, for surprise. a service that you know uh, they uh, youtube never did a good job of explaining the value of what that service was so of course there there were just not going to be that many people subscribing purely for cobra kai or no that's it you don't yeah. need to you yeah, don't need it for it. a second <laughs> exactly <laughs> impulse
1: if you want a name of another impulse, show that uh, does next, exist did that get canceled I don't know, but the second season did know. air and whatever. It's a show that exists. That's all I know.
2: Yeah, you know, so, so Cobra Kai and, and Liza On Demand starring a, a YouTube creator, Liza Koshy, are kind of the two remaining YouTube originals that have kind of lasted through this transition. And it sounds like they'll continue to invest in those shows for the time being as they now focus more on unscripted programming. Facebook is interesting because I think Facebook is, is still a little earlier in their original programming strategy than YouTube. And so we have... Haven't yet seen a pivot, but it feels very much like they're still in a kind of experimentation mode. They had a, a show that people really loved, and sorry for your loss, but didn't seem to know how to properly really get the word out there about that show and and have it make a splash with awards or with viewers. Now they'll talk a lot about how that show, you know, kind of birthed this conversation among their users around loss and grief, and um, that that was really powerful. and And if I had to guess, they kind of saw that conversation emerged and decided to kind of lean into that narrative and and now are looking for other shows that can... Spur similar conversations around similar topics, and so the other one that's been successful for them in that regard is Red Table Talk with Jada Pinkett Smith, and it's uh, you know it's more of a talk show format, but you know there are you know groups that have formed to kind of converse about the show, and but again, it, it all feels like it's it's much smaller than what we're seeing on the scale of Disney Plus and Netflix and um, you know Warner Media's HBO Max and everything that's coming down the pipe.
0: Yeah. And I think just wrapping up, you know, one of my big stories that I'm very curious to watch of what happens in 2020 is what's going on with Hulu under Disney's ownership. Um, So what we know for sure is that there will be at least four shows that were developed by FX that will air or stream on Hulu as part of an FX on Hulu type banner. But have we really seen the Disney Disneyification, is that a word, of Hulu yet?
2: I think that's coming uh, to your point about the FX on Hulu brand. We're also now seeing Hulu be bundled uh, along with Disney Plus and ESPN Plus for a a discounted price. Uh, So, you know, I think that as Disney Plus continues to grow and as Hulu becomes more integrated into Disney, we'll see more of that kind of consolidation of those three different brands and the way people can access them and, and purchase all of them. You know, the... Fox acquisition and the subsequent and kind of Disney acquisition of, of Hulu came at a really interesting time for Hulu because they had had this massive year of growth. They've got 26.8 million subscribers in the U.S. Now they are a U.S.-only service. That's pretty sizable and makes them a solid, uh, you know, kind of competitor alongside Netflix and Amazon. But it feels as though some of that growth kind of got stalled by all of the machinations at the kind of executive corporate level. And it will be really interesting to see if Disney can kind of, you know, reignite that engine and, and you know, help kind of, continue to boost hulu as it's also trying to boost disney plus and can these services really become you know kind of part of this like three-pronged disney bundle yeah
1: well thank you so much for joining us today natalie jarvie and i'm sorry we did not get to talk about the future of crackle at all
0: (laughs) next time dan (laughs) thanks natalie number two up second 2019 saw a number of major tv shows wrap up their runs Well, as most of our listeners know, not every show is lucky enough to know ahead of time that it's the ending. In this peak TV landscape, a lot of things get canceled when multiple seasons were were in mind. Lodge 49 is a great example, Dan. But a lot of networks for either creative or financial issues, a number of game-changing comedies and dramas came to their natural conclusions in 2019. Dan, if we have to have a show of the year, based on its importance to the TV landscape and its network and I'm talking just specifically about the shows that ended this year, to me, it's HBO's Game of Thrones. You know, And say what you will about that divisive series finale, to me, no other show was, was as important to its platform than Game of Thrones.
1: I like that we have settled rather comfortably on decisive as our description for the finale of Game of Thrones, which seems... It was divisive. It was divisive, sure, and truly, and so it goes. I think this is one of those things where... Eventually, we're going to be able to take a step back and we're going to go, okay, you know, four great seasons, a couple mixed seasons, one season that really pissed people off, etc. You know, still a rather impressive legacy, incredibly popular winner of a gazillion Emmys, etc. There's the legacy. I don't think that this is the kind of final season that is going to permanently besmirch the show's reputation in the way that people have decided that not liking the finale of Lost ruined the entire experience for them. Uh, I don't think people are feeling that way for the most part about Game of Thrones. I'm sure some are. There's no question. Some are. But yeah, no, without without a doubt, it is the biggest show that left us this year, and it would be hard to be much bigger. Hence, everybody writing those, what will the world do without Game of Thrones, and will there ever be another Game of Thrones columns?
0: Yeah, and, and look, every network is certainly trying. Warner Media is going to as well. They're doing a Game of Thrones prequel for HBO, which I can't imagine will be ready anytime soon, specifically next year. Definitely won't happen. They haven't even started casting that one yet. But a lot of things that, you know, the people wrote in the search for the next Game of Thrones, everyone, including THR, wrote about what happens to HBO now that it's over. And I think, you know, in a larger sense, they also said farewell to Veep and Silicon Valley and some other shows, you know, Divorce and The Deuce also wrapped up. But at the same time, HBO they're they're doing just fine. Dan Watchmen, Succession, then obviously The Game of Thrones prequels in the works. But I mean, the state of HBO is is quite healthy.
1: Yeah, I think that there was a tendency to get into pre-panic. Oh, HBO is losing the biggest drama of the past decade, and an acclaimed Emmy-winning Smash and Veep and one of its landmark comedies in Silicon Valley, et cetera, et cetera, oh no, what will they do? Succession certainly picked up much of the hype, not really all that much of the audience if we're being perfectly mathematically accurate, but definitely a lot of the hype and conversation that Game of Thrones left behind. Watchmen picked up a little bit more of the audience and...
0: Tremendously amount of of the narrative. Perhaps
1: even more of the narrative that, uh, that it left behind. And... You know, shows that, honestly, HBO didn't expect to do anything, something like a Chernobyl, which they probably thought was a little tiny prestige play to keep the lights on on Monday night and kind of build out a Monday night programming block, ended up being an absolute sensation of a particular type. So when you look at the year that HBO had, and also a lot of those shows, you know, Game of Thrones was a divisive finale. I would say people were much more positive about the Veep finale, and I think there was general... Positivity towards the Silicon Valley finale after a couple kind of up and down seasons, so not really so much worried about HBO. But I don't necessarily know that I know how people responded to the divorce finale. Have you heard? Have you heard buzz <laughs> off of that one? I have not.
0: No, Dan. A lot of other sh- flagship shows ended this year. One of the bigger ones in terms of audience is, of course, CBS's The Big Bang Theory. That signed off as TV's longest-running multi-camera comedy in history, and closed its run as broadcast number one scripted show. Very few things actually get to go out on top when it, when you're talking about broadcast shows like that.
1: Big Bang Theory had a had a strong final season and a fairly satisfying finale and yeah, I think it probably got a little bit lost in the critical conversation of the year. It was not... It didn't suddenly find its way back into any of the Emmy fields. It wasn't...
0: Sign off never having won a Best Comedy Emmy nomination. This Emmy bothers
1: win. me yeah. less than it bothers you. I know you were a bigger fan. To me, the, the awards it won for uh, Jim Parsons were the awards that it
0: And my Bialik won, yeah. Uh, and, did she win? I believe so. I don't think she did. <laughs> well, Bob Newhart won. Bob Newhart which, definitely his won. His first career Emmy win was for Big Bang, guesting on Big Bang Theory. But look, I think... We talk about all these shows, but broadcast number one show ending, the number one comedy on on broadcast ending, and then Game of Thrones ending in the same year, and then you add in shows like Orange is the New Black which wrapped after seven seasons on Netflix, and it currently ranks as Netflix's longest-running scripted original, which is no small feat given its interest in canceling shows after four seasons now. But when we talk about some of these other sh- shows that ended this year, Mr. Robot on USA, which was a brand-defining show for, for USA Network, Fleabag, Broad City, Jane the Virgin, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, and then some of the smaller, you know, more critical shows, one of my favorites, You're the Worst, Legion, Kimmy Schmidt. I mean, it feels like a really, really big year for a lot of really culturally defining shows to have ended.
1: A whole lot of turnover. I think that Orange is the New Black is probably the one that got most lost in the conversation that probably deserved more conversation because for whatever reason... Mostly, probably because it lasted longer maybe than it necessarily needed to. There were a couple bumpy seasons in there. Didn't bother. Final m- season
0: was great, though. Uh,
1: final season was terrific. And I hope that somehow Emmy voters can find a way to remember a couple of those performances. But there's mm-hmm. zero chance that they will because it'll be, you know, nine months from now. And so. there's so much content. Yeah. But that, that's a show that really and truly, to me, much more than House of Cards established what Netflix could actually be as a repository of original programming. House of Cards definitely made the biggest smash. There's no... And
0: that was their their entryway to scripted.
1: And it was their way of saying, look, we've got a hundred plus million dollars that we're throwing at David Fincher and Kevin Spacey. This shows we can do this. Impressive. But to me, in the long run, Orange is the New Black was a much better show and did many more nuanced things as it continued to go along, and even when it went off the rails, as it did sometimes, it didn't go nearly as far off the rails as has Cards. so it, it feels like that's important. You you mentioned Mr. Robot as a brand-defining show. It was a show that was supposed to be a brand-defining show. It ultimately really I mean, USA
0: wasn't. changed its, you know, they ditched, they were known, what was their Blue Sky Network, right? All the procedurals, like Suits, which also ended. But then you look at, and they went for these dark and edgier shows, right, like Queen of the South. Everything was following in the, in the format of of Mr. Robot. That was the show that was the direction of that network and now without it I, I think we're, you know, I don't know what USA is. I
1: think we're going to have to see in the next year or two. I To, to me Mr. Robot was, I don't want to say it was a missed opportunity because it was a show that remained into this season its last season, tremendously acclaimed, Rami Malek still getting nominated for things, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Oscar winner Rami Malek. Oscar winner Rami Malik. I just don't think that it, it had the permanent tangible effect that it initially seemed like it was going to have. You mentioned Jane the Virgin and Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. I think those are both tremendously important shows because they were the last bastion of basically non-DC or uh, Riverdale-related programming on the CW. Neither one was ever as big a hit as those shows were, but they were great shows. They actually won Golden Globes. You know, they got the CW on an awards map in a way that they never had been before. And both shows had extremely satisfying final seasons. So I, I definitely want to give those shows a little bit of love and give love to, uh, you know, their stars, their creators, et cetera, because they're important shows. And, you know, I miss those shows.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, you know, we, you've talked a lot about shows that didn't get the recognition they should have. But, you know, on a, on a personal level, Dan, was there a favorite series finale that you had this year or... Maybe one of these shows that you'll really miss the most.
1: I think a lot of the shows, unfortunately, that I'll miss the most are the ones where they didn't necessarily know that they were ending so you know a Lodge 49 or something like a Speechless on ABC which also
0: cancelled too soon came to an
1: end this year. Speechless as I've said several times the mistake they made was that they wrapped up their last season too well. They made it it possible for ABC to say look we love you but you're probably not going to do better than this as a conclusion so let this be your end.
0: Yeah, And there was a brief rumbling that that it could live again either on like a Disney Plus or a Hulu but that obviously nothing ever came with that but I think you know to your point that that is for me one of the shows that I miss the most
1: oh I I miss that weekly because a lot of the ABC shows that I still watch are I mean some of them are coming to an end also in addition Mm -hmm. but a lot of the ABC shows that I watch are not really at peak value at this moment and I'm still watching them because they're ending and Modern Family Modern Modern Family Fresh Off the Boat are both coming to an end etc and Speechless was a show that really hadn't gotten anywhere near a creative downslide so a little too bad I you know I miss I miss Tuka and Birdie that was another show that its cancellation is still inexplicable I, to I me. still
0: yeah I, I think that that was probably one of the cancellations this year that I really struggled to understand because you know it's from a, a top creator Raphael Bob waksberg who's of course got BoJack Horseman which is ending in 2020 on Netflix it had a great voice cast Ali Wong Tiffany Haddish Great reviews for it. Yeah, I, I didn't understand that. But, you know, for, for me, you know, of all these shows that ended this year, look, I was a Big Bang fan from the start. You know, I, I you know, there's still, a, you know, a trace of that left on CBS with Young Sheldon, which I know you like. But for me, the the, the show that I will miss the most is You're the Worst.
1: Well, we will miss them all.
0: Porn one out for all the shows that we said farewell to in 2019.
1: Number three.
0: Up third, Dan, we've recorded 51 episodes, including this. This year and featured nearly 20 showrunner spotlights and had a handful of executives and talent. We did one live show along the way of the many news stories we've covered and the shows that you've reviewed this year for our third segment. Let's talk about what stands out. And, and let's be clear before we get into things. This is not winners and losers of the year, but rather the narratives that we've truly enjoyed discussing throughout 2019. Dan, let, let, let's start with you. What were some of your your highlights?
1: I would say the thing we clearly most enjoyed discussing is the number of showrunners that Designated Survivor
0: has had. Got a number for us? I'm starting to forget. Was it five (laughs) showrunners? Five showrunners, two networks, two studios. Three seasons. Three seasons. And now
1: two cancellations. Rest in peace, Desenia Survivor. What else have we enjoyed talking about frequently? Um, I've enjoyed counting up and down the number of television shows that Greg Berlanti is producing. That has been one of my favorite stories of the year.
0: 21 plus un, one unscripted, so 22 total.
1: I swear you're underestimating that. I think the number is closer to 63. I also enjoy the That's fact the that the end we've,
0: of 2020. Dan.
1: <laughs> I also enjoy the fact that we've managed to bring up the number of shows that Greg Berlanti is producing with each of the people in the showrunner spotlight, and every single one of them has given an answer somewhere along the lines of, "Boy, I really, I, I'm really impressed with the number of shows Greg Berlanti is producing, but I can't imagine ever doing that myself."
0: <laughs> I mean, look, and everyone's sing and Greg will be the first one to single this out too, he has a large team at Berlanti Productions. So, um, you know, for for me, you know, I'm a news junkie, so I've uh, enjoyed attempting at least to keep up with the evolving landscape and the escalating price tags for overall deals and library content like Friends in the Office and how these traditional media companies are positioning themselves for the streaming world. So stuff like Friends in the Office and South Park leaving their homes for these big, staggering deals with have lots of zeros at the end that's been one of my highlights and will continue to be you know as the calendar flips to next year
1: i have definitely enjoyed all of the opportunities to wince and have parts of me die inside when you've listed the number of zeros after several of these contracts that people are getting some of them seem very clearly to be good value to me others of them have me scratching my head and wondering why.
0: game of thrones creators (laughs) to netflix for 250 million is the deal that that I probably don't understand.
1: Even people I I love and respect like Mindy Kaling, her deal seems absurdly large to me and probably the best way to respond to that is it's not my money. So, yeah. you know, if someone wants to give Mindy Kaling that money by all means. I like and respect Mindy Kaling, so she's just going where the market's taking her by all means.
0: <laughs> yeah, the you know with the other pieces, you know, for me Marvel Television, I think, which you know, we've talked about, you know, on a couple episodes recently, at the start of the year Netflix still had Marvel shows and now Jeff Lowe barely has any, how J.J. Abrams left money on the table from Apple to stay at Warner Media, and the, these you know increasingly common company-wide deals that, that are becoming more commonplace to keep top talent in-house or to lure top talent. So that, that to me is one of the, the other big, you know, like we talk about a lot of zeros. I mean, it, it makes Berlanti seem like a steal at $400 million. <laughs>
1: Nobody seems like a steal at 400000000 million. He's got
0: 22 shows that he's doing.
1: Okay, fine. Well, then, yes, he's probably a better deal than uh, than Bryce Harper. I'm not questioning that <laughs> and probably has a better attitude in the clubhouse. No so. doubt. So there's no question. No, and, uh, you know, so we've talked about those things, and we already had the great Natalie Jarvey to talk about the streaming wars, but heaven knows that's been a thing that we've been talking about aggressively. And
0: it's Spoiler been... Spoiler a- alert, we'll continue to talk about aggressively in But it's been such a
1: fun journey for us to be learning The names of things. I mean, I remember back when we started, we didn't even know what Disney's streaming service was going to be called. We didn't know what Apple's streaming service was going to be called. Peacock was merely a bird with a funny plumage, and now it's NBC's streaming service. HBO used to be a prestige cable network uh, where it wasn't TV; it was HBO. Now it's just a prefix ahead of Max. So, (laughs) which I feel bad about for all the HBO people because. HBO really did used to be a prestige brand, and Warner Brothers is doing its darndest to make it into uh, another piece of the streaming puzzle, which doesn't feel right to me, but what do I know? And trying to figure out where FX was going to fit in, and trying to figure out the future of Hulu, and you know... Which is
0: now with FX on Hulu. I mean, who would have predicted that coming?
1: And, and you know, wither crackle.
0: What? What's Crackle again?
1: I, I believe it's owned by the Chicken Soup for the Soul people. Is, is that which right, I believe yeah. is the accurate thing? I, I know I, I don't normally talk correctly about what Crackle is or isn't, but I believe, yes, it is owned by the Chicken Soup for the Soul people now and preparing for season seven of Smash, not Smash, uh, season seven of Snatch and season 13 would, of The would, Art of the Deal. I would watch, watch season
0: seven of Smash, though.
1: Oh, sure, we all would. I, I would, would
0: subscribe to Crackle if they had season seven of Smash.
1: Okay, Crackle's a free service with ad supporting, so you would not need to. <laughs>
0: well, if they had Smash, they're going to maybe have to start charging.
1: I so. would follow Cat <laughs> McPhee to the ends of the earth, and that includes, but only barely, Crackle.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, the other piece that, you know, we've covered a lot is, you know, the mergers and consolidation and the executive suites that's happening everywhere from Warner Media to Viacom CBS and Fox and Disney. I mean, I think you know, you look no further than the exec suites to see how this landscape is shifting. And, you know, the other thing is, you know, the, I, I am, as you noted, Dan, with with Designated Survivor, I am a sucker for shows that are so damaged and have changed showrunners time and time again. And, you know, one of the things that we will continue to talk about is whatever the hell happen, is happening with Snowpiercer and TNT and, you know, American Gods, which we talked about at the start of the show. I mean, they're, they're now on four showrunners in less than three seasons. And Snowpiercer has been on... Two networks had two different directors and two different showrunners, and it made my most anticipated shows of 2019 list. Didn't premiere at all this year. It's allegedly premiering in 2020, but like, you know, these are narratives that for me, it's, it's I, I don't understand why some of these outlets stick with with damaged goods, and they just you know they'll just stick a new showrunner in there, and like that'll fix everything. Um, but yeah, that's you know that's just for me one of uh the, one of the things that I enjoy. Dan, you know, l- wrapping this this segment, you know, for for me, my least favorite stories of the year, I, I think, you know, whatever the hell Jesse Smollett d- allegedly did or didn't do, that was an emotional roller coaster. And then you know, Kevin Hart's homophobia.
1: Yeah, we've definitely had several opportunities of different types to unleash angry Dan on the world, uh, and I don't know that Jesse Smollett whatever the heck that was ever brought that out in me. Probably Kevin Hart did. There have also been things like SNL hiring and firing Mm -hmm. a guy in a week because they couldn't be bothered to actually listen to anything he'd produced and put out into the world. Maybe just Google him. That was not a particularly good look, Lorne Michaels. Uh, Just as recently as last week, had to deal with Survivor and, on-camera improper touching or sexual assault, or however you allegedly want to put it. Uh, But if nothing else, since then, CBS has been attempting to suggest that changes are being made on, on Survivor, and we'll see if they manage to find a way to save the show. Certainly, they have not given us much reason to have any faith in anybody or anything associated with the show, and that's disappointing for those of us who have watched 39 seasons of Survivor and hate to see it get ruined because production couldn't just tell a dude to stop touching women on the first day in the game. Doesn't seem all that complicated to me, but apparently they didn't have a policy to tell dudes to stop touching women.
0: Also, just use common sense. Come on.
1: I, Courtesy,
0: not, common sense.
1: I'm and I'm legitimate.
0: Treat people the way you want to be treated. It's it's not hard.
1: Well, I mean, you know, that's that's a policy for Survivor as in life. See, Survivor is like life. Um, Let's see. What else has there been in the past year? It's been a year where there have been the rise of additional limited series and talking about all of the big stars we're getting on TV. And that's always fun, even though we should probably move past the point at which we have to be like, ooh, movie star on TV. For heaven's sakes, Reese Witherspoon in early 2020 is going to have her, what, third TV series in a year? So Little
0: Fires Everywhere coming in March on Hulu.
1: Whatever mystique there once was, It's gone now. Everybody's just a everybody's just a media star. Everybody's just a a storytelling star. So Reese Witherspoon's wherever Al Pacino's
0: doing it, doing an Amazon show in 2020. I mean, where he says
1: mitzvah. Oh God, (laughs) if you want to get Dan to watch your show, having Al Pacino in your trailer saying mitzvah. Ah, such a good way to do it. Talking of
0: course about Hunters on Amazon.
1: Yes, uh, where where I hope it's every week. Um, Al Pacino explains a different mitzvah. That would be great. That would be a show I would watch. Amazon, please do this for me. I I ask for so little.
0: (laughs) Um, You know, one of the other things, too, for, for me, discovering new voices, one of my favorite shows of the year was Sex Education on Netflix and Laurie Nunn, who is the creative force behind that one. And Dan, you know, you've been telling me all year, or at least since April, that there's this show on Hulu called Rami that's very good and worth checking out. Well, dan, happy Hanukkah my friend. Guess who guess what I binged. I watched <laughs> Rami and you know, I'm happy to report that yes, you were right, my friend. It is one of my favorite shows of the year, and I am kicking myself that I watched so many three-hour Dodger games that ended poorly when I could have been watching this show that made me feel like a better person by the end of it.
1: I hope that other people have done the same slash will do the same. Yes, uh, Laurie Nunn is one great voice that, that people have discovered this year, and lots of people getting to show off their voices of different kinds, like Natasha Lyonne in in Russian Doll, but certainly Rami is one of the year's most exciting and promising new voices on his show he got to write and direct and star and you know that that's feeling to me a little bit like a transition
0: i think for our next segment you have a little surprise for us not so much a surprise as
1: a guest number four so we don't really have a showrunner spotlight for this episode instead We have a guest who had a pretty terrific year, starring in his first TV show. Hulu's Rami was my number three show of the year and also debuted the HBO stand-up special Feelings. And he recently snagged his first Golden Globe nomination as lead actor in a comedy series. Joining us this week from the set of the second season of Rami is Rami Youssef. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat. We know how how busy you are on the set. (laughs) Oh, dude, no, I, I really appreciate it. Appreciate you guys having me on. So first off, uh, congratulations on the Golden Globe nomination. Had you known the
4: nominations were coming? And what were you expecting that morning, if anything? I knew they were coming. We had talked about it, I think, at some point over that weekend. And I I really had no idea what to expect. I think so much of the um, experience with the show and its first season uh, has been kind of feeling like, the people who've seen it really love it but we're kind of a little bit under the radar so i i really wasn't expecting too much because i was like you know we're we're under the radar and you know let's see what uh what happens but like no harm if it doesn't you know i i wasn't trying to get too tripped up over it or anything but then the reality of it happening was uh it was just like man this is really fucking cool like this is this is awesome and and even, um, like, I never really understood the phrase, it's just an honor to be nominated. I always thought that was something people said when they lost. But uh, it really is just an honor to be nominated. <laughs> like, it's, it's crazy how many people have watched the show, like just in the last week and a half because of it. And that's the, the coolest part of the whole thing.
0: You know, you mentioned the number of people who have watched the show in the last week and a half. And you can add me to that category. You know, Dan, my colleague and, and dear friend here has been on me since April to watch the show (laughs) and I'm a big baseball fan so I didn't get to it but having now seen it and obviously with the Golden Globe nomination and you mentioned you know the show the show really flew under the radar but you know how much does this globe really help you to help get the show into people's minds and and on on people's radars again even you know now what nine months later
4: yeah no I mean I think I think you know like how ha- like like what happened with you I do think our main competition has always been baseball <laughs> I've said it a bunch I'm always like I'm always like the MLB is killing us guys we got to figure out how to compete uh so something like this it helps us uh it helps us cut through I mean I, I think if I think about just myself uh, it-, it usually takes like six people I really trust and maybe a blood oath for me to watch something like I need people to really be like dude this thing is dope for me to actually go and check it out and I love TV and I love stuff but there's just so many things so it's so hard to commit to something and I think to get recognized this way again even with just a nomination it just helps us cut through it's just one more little thing that kind of tells people hey this isn't a waste of your time you know you, you can you can invest your time here and and you know we're all really busy and there's so many things to look at and, and, and to just have a, a small marker that, that can kind of tell the audience that, that this is worthwhile and, and, and help the word of mouth build even in a, in a stronger way, but also to kind of, you know, on an industry level to show that a, a story this small and and this personal can mean something and can get recognition is, is really important. I mean, it's, this is like a really specific immigrant family through my very specific point of view uh, and the fact that it could you know, get recognized for a globe, something that kind of, you know, is, is um, people from all over the world are voting on. Uh, that that really, I think, is is encouraging to me for just other creators that could hopefully be in my position. You know, it, it, it helps things like this get made.
1: Well, what has Hulu been able to tell you about what this has meant in a tangible sense in terms of the bump for the show in the past week, week and a half?
4: You know, I haven't gotten any statistics, but I'm definitely getting emails from people I don't get emails from, which is pretty cool. <laughs> I mean, there's definitely some people who are like, "Oh, snap." Like like you just like people are very excited. And and so I, I don't know the um the the ripple yet, but I I do know that um it, it's it's the kind of thing that um that, that's just really helpful for, for getting to make more, but also it's, it's, it's an opportunity to celebrate because we felt really supported at Hulu, you know, I think from the beginning, you know, they, they really believed in our show, gave us really like a really cool pilot commitment right away. And, and so this is just kind of like, um, you know, a, a, a further affirmation, which, which is really, uh, which is really cool. And, and then, yeah, I think it spills into other things that, that maybe I'll, I'll know more about, you know, when, when more time's passed.
1: Now, the first season of the show was for you all about these new experiences. Your first time starring in a show, first time writing with Strawberries. It was your first time directing. With all those hats you were wearing for the first time, what came most naturally for you and which of the hats produced the biggest challenges for you?
4: Um, I I think the biggest challenge is the balance of all of them. They're all things that on an indie level I've done, but acting is probably the only thing that I had done professionally beforehand, but I, but I think, you know, kind of, uh, I've been dipping into doing comedy and, and kind of making my own things, editing things, all that. That started for me when I was, you know, in high school, me and my buddy, Steve and and Jonathan and and Kyle, and, and Steve is the one who's on my show, you know, we all made things together. And so we were directing each other, writing for each other, editing. And then we really like, Obviously now it's doing it with with bigger budgets and, and figuring out how to like balance all of that was a huge challenge and so I think like in many ways the acting felt supernatural but then you know I got to direct an episode that I wasn't in and I was so it was so exciting I was like oh man I don't have to go through hair and makeup <laughs> and I can just focus on the thing like, this is awesome like like there was um, this ownership over the story and 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 getting to um, you know really craft it in a way that yeah, you you don't really get to do unless you're in in, in a situation like I'm in. Because what's amazing about this show being so personal is, like, even, you know, we had a multitude of directors kind of coming in, but because it's so personal, I, I really am involved with all of it, you know. And from last year to this year, it's like I'm in every shot list meeting, in every, obviously in the writer's room, my hands on all the scripts and stuff. And, and so, um, yeah, learning how to, like, continue balancing it all has, has definitely been... Uh, really exciting, but, but definitely, yeah, definitely a challenge.
0: You mentioned that you've been working and making sh- original content since high school. Take me back. I I'm curious here about the origins of this show and being able to, to land at Hulu. I mean, did you shop this around Were you told no, like what was the process of getting this show made? Like,
4: yeah, you know, we, um, we had a, a stand up tape of mine. I I'd had this like laugh factory tape. I think it was like 40 minutes and basically, we kind of sent it around to a bunch of people saying, this is the point of view of of what we want to bring. And, you know, when I first moved to L.A., the first open mic I ever went to was with Ari Kacher, who's one of my co-creators, and he had created Carmichael Show with Gerard. And so I'm really close with Ari. I was opening on the road for Gerard and, um, you know, they had their show on at the air at the time. And so, uh, it kind of turned into a thing where A24 saw me opening for, for Gerard and then, um we, you know, we kind of put together this thing, the tape and and, then a pitch and, and we just went into rooms. I think, I think we went to six places and 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 we got three offers, which was really cool. And, um, and I think the big step up from Hulu was that, yeah, they were the only place that said, you know, we're going to, we're shooting a pilot. Like we guarantee we'll shoot a pilot. And, and I just, at the time, this was before Handmaid's Tale even came out. So, you know, at that time, really, I was just like, you know what? It doesn't really matter where it is. It's just got to be, you know... Uh, me, someone who really doesn't have any sort of like say in the comedy world, I didn't have a special out. I didn't have anything out to be able to make a show that that followed my point of view. Um, I really just wanted to go to the place that would let me make something because I knew if I could make something, we would be able to get it on the air. and And because we you know I, I really had been kind of figuring out what I wanted to talk about and stand up for a while. And then it became clear that you know, a single cam comedy w- was the way to 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 kind of make it happen.
1: Now, obviously, a lot of the talk about the first season was about the treatment of of religion and your personal experience with faith. I'm curious about the responses that you've gotten from people once it's been out in the world. What do people tell you they want to see more of? What do they tell you you're you're
4: getting wrong? How have people responded to you? Yeah, um, lots of different things I never would have thought. I mean, I, I remember maybe like Two days after the show came out, I got an email from this guy who was like, "You know, I'm a evangelical Christian, father of three, and uh, I am Rami." Huh. You know, <laughs> and I was like, "Oh wow!" Like I like really t- this dude was just like, "I've never seen anything like this, and and I've never felt this, and 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 there were a lot of things like that, like I just walking in the street in L.A. and 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 a guy coming up to me and being like dude you made me think you know being muslim is hard but it would be awesome and 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 I want to do rituals and I want to wash up and I want to have a thing like you have a thing and 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 that was the kind of thing that really again kind of not what I thought would happen you know and then on on um on the level of the various communities that this touches it's really interesting because Arab Muslims, which is what I am, I think connected with the show in this way that I was really excited about. They're like, man, this feels like my family. This feels like what what I you know have gone through, and then. Other groups of Muslims were like, yo, what is it? This isn't how we are. You know, there's South Asian communities, there's black Muslims, there's different sects and and, and people in in different parts of the world. And so uh, there's all that other feedback where it's like, because we uh, have so few things, right? Uh And even my generation who like, I think about what I had growing up, I was like, man, we I don't know what the Arab representation was. It was the news. It was like Aladdin, I guess. We were like, yeah, he might be Muslim. He's got a carpet, but like, we don't know if he (laughs) prays on it. Like maybe, but I don't know he flies on it, but he praying would be too much. You know, we, we, we had no, we had nothing. So I think people would look at this and they want it to be everything that this void hasn't been able to fill. And, and I think with that naturally there comes disappointment. And so there were, um, definitely things that kind of came from, man, why are you talking so much about sex? You should do this. Or man, we want more of the sister. We want more, you know, this show should have a female lead. Why do we, we don't want to do this. You know, the, our time right now calls for a lot of things. And so for me, the feedback's really interesting because it's like, you know, I have critiques of, you know, any anyone who makes anything who is being honest with themselves always has critiques of their own work in retrospect. I kind of, I'm leaning more into those, into my own kind of critiques of what I'm making. I think it becomes a little difficult to fully rely on what the audience wants because sometimes they just want a totally different show. So <laughs> I think it's, there's this balance of kind of, okay, there are certain things the audience is saying that align with my values and I need to step those up. And there's certain things the audience are saying that um, it's because they want something that I can't really provide. And so how do I hone in more on what I can do well uh, that I'm uniquely able to do and and so that's been uh, a really cool relationship to, to start building
1: well the first season had especially in the second half you were clearly having a lot of fun playing around with the format you had the episodes focused on the main character's mother or on on his sister you had the two episodes in Egypt etc what did you learn from those format bending experiences and how much are you trying to push that even more in the second season
4: Yeah, I think we learned that, you know, we, we have, you know, even for a new show that like we, we kind of had like a way of telling a story that we could do with any of our characters. And that was really exciting, you know, and, and, and going into the second season, we're doing it again, you know, and, and because I think in order to understand somebody, you, you want to understand the, the people around that character. And, and it's something that when I was watching TV, I, I've always felt like, okay, I get why there are A stories and B stories and C stories, but everything always feels really crammed. And and so I think a big part of our perspective when we went into making this show was like, let's just make everything an A story. So if we really want to talk about a character, let's just give them an A story. Like, what, why do we have to give them four semi-witty lines in one scene and that's who they are? Like, that that's not like a real exploration of what someone's going through. You know, how do we make everyone feel like the protagonist at a certain point of time because that's what life is like you know you you know someone's a side character in my life but I'm a side character in their life and and so how do we do that with the show how do we really lean into that and 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 provide that and so you know in in our second season we're doing it pretty much with all our central family and because that's exciting to me I I don't I I only want to be in half of them anyway again like hair and makeup is just it's a drag.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know as as you focus now on season two, you know, thank you for of course, taking some time out from production. What are some of the things that you're really, really looking to explore with with some of the supporting cast? I mean, I specifically from season one, I love the episode focused um around your character's sister That was for me one of, one of the highlights, and there were many,
4: yeah, yeah, just wanting to fill them out more, you know, wanting to see more of um of what they're going through and and you know, this is the type of show that I feel like there's so many stories that we can tell, you know, I, I I like look at every character and I'm like, man, like I could do a whole show about you, (laughs) you know, like everyone is so, is so full of life. And, and a lot of that is because many, I would say probably like 75% Seventy-five percent of the actors on my show are people I've known for a very long time who I've wanted to write for, and so they just have these really filled-out backstories. And and so we're we're really just getting further into it. I mean, I, I'm still very much the protagonist in this season. A lot of that is kind of the nature of how certain things shaped out. I mean, we um we got Mahershala Ali's is is guesting on our show this season, and we have a really a uh, really cool arc between me and him that um, that really tests what's most exciting to me about the show, which is kind of watching someone you know struggle with his spirituality and, and you know who he he wants to be and who he actually is and and so we we've really kind of been able to dig into that in a way that I think is goes beyond self exploration and and really like digs into um, some really tangible things that we kind of watch my character go through and and then the more we kind of like see with with the people how his family reacts to to some of the choices he's making and and kind of what they're going through too and so um that that ecosystem you know uh, only thrives because we were able to set that up in the first season where we kind of get to go into a second season now and we know the players we kind of know what what's happening with them on an intimate level again not like in a really focused way and and so everything kind of means more
1: well, Mahershala Ali is a, a pretty big get for you guys. Uh, what were the conversations with him like to bring him on board? Did he know the show already and what you guys were doing?
4: Yeah, he called me. You huh. know, I was in the writers' room for like a month, and then uh, Mahershala called me. I, I got like an email that was like, "Hey, Mahershala, he wants to get on the phone with you." And I was like, "Okay." <laughs> and then, and he was like, "We talked for probably like two hours, and he was just really, um, you know." uh, effusive with, with praising the show and, and, and with, um, you know, his, his feelings on certain things that I, that I was exploring and, and, you know, we're both Muslim and, and, and he's was just very excited by, uh, what we were trying to do. And so he was just like, Hey man, like whatever you need, let me know, which is the coolest thing to get from the guy who like just won an Oscar and could do anything. <laughs> and so it, it, uh, it, it kind of just like, I didn't really believe him at first. And then I hung out with him a few times and I was like, wait, you really want to be in the show? Like, you really actually want to be in the show? And he was like, dude, I told you that the first time we talked. And so um, it was really amazing. It was really amazing to to, um, to to sink into the reality of that and then build out some really cool story around something and a character that I think only only he could play, uh, which 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 is really always the goal I think with everything I want to do with this show is like what could this show only do and and if we have an actor like that what 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 could we you know craft around them that only they could do and so that's just like a, a little bit of kind of how that developed with
0: him Where will season 2 pick up? I mean, will you answer that cliffhanger right away or do you kind of start with a time jump?
4: Both. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll there's a there's a time jump and, and we'll, we'll get into that cliffhanger. Yeah. Season, season one is very aspirational and, and very explorative. And, and I would say season two is very much, uh, we we start digging into some consequences and, and we start kind of, um, you know, I think to the flip of every like optimistic view you could have about someone is kind of like, you know, what's messed up about how this person's operating. And, and I think we really dig into that more with the Rami character. Well, what reactions did you
1: get to the the relationship direction that those last couple episodes were going? Was it a lot of ew? Was it a lot of, huh, I kind of see where you were
4: going with that? How did people respond? Uh, it's funny, man, because it's like... You know, it's a thing that happens sometimes in Arab culture. I wouldn't say it's super popular right now, but it's totally <laughs> a thing. And so I think a lot of Arabs are like, well, yeah, you know, and then a lot of Arabs are like, why are you making it like that's all we do? You know, and so there, there's a lot of um, there was contention over, you know, accuracy, but also like, but why? Why zone in on that? Uh, and then a lot of people being like, man, I love the whole show, but that last thing, man, I don't like that, you know, and um <laughs> And and you know, there's a lot of things that bothered people, you know, and it's really funny because it's like they're, they're some of the things that bother people are some of my favorite things. And 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 so what's really cool is like a lot of those things that bother people we're we're just gonna double down on. And so that'll be even more fun. And and so um so yeah.
1: So your Rami executive producers include Gerard Carmichael, who's made it a real point to use his visibility to kind of push and expose unknown and underseen and underheard voices. Is that kind of a a model that you see yourself wanting to emulate as you go forward?
4: Yeah. I mean, I think for, you know, for all of us, it's like, I think it's it's a very like comedian mentality, even just from like how like a a stand-up tour works. Right. It's like you, you, you know, you, you kind of work really hard to be able to like get an hour that you can take on the road. And then the first thing you do is like, well, let me get my friend to come open for me. Cause I want my friend to build their thing too. You know? And, and so that's been really cool that that's, that's kind of how we've come up. And, and I think sometimes people forget that, but I think what's really cool about someone like Gerard is, is, you know, he, he hasn't forgotten that obviously. And, and for myself, that's something that I I would love to do because once you really kind of get to go through the thing and figure it out it's exciting to keep doing it for yourself but then you also you know want to help other people do it and, and you want to you know make more things I mean right now what's been awesome is, is is the relationship you know that I have been able to build with A24 because we've made this show together they know how I feel about the things I would like to do in the television space that go way beyond my show and so um, for the, like the next couple of years we, we have like a you know a continued partnership like I'm, I'm, I have an overall with them where we're going to be making more things one of the things that we're doing right now is uh, we're developing a, a show for Steve, who who's on my show that, you know, that I've known my whole life. And it really centers around showing the perspective and the experience of a disabled person and their family in a real way. And, and in the same way that there are people who watch my show that their minds are kind of blown where they're like, whoa, I've never seen Arabs and Muslims just praying together and talking Arabic to each other in a contemporary, like, and on American TV format, we want to do that for a character who has a disability and isn't just a side character, you know, with the same thing of like, you know, Steve had an A-story storyline on my show in season one, but... I really want to like build something around him that can show, um, you know, what is it like to, to be in a disabled person, but also in a disabled community, you know, what, what is it like to be with other people who are going through similar things and not just being the one, uh, in, in someone else's story. And so that, that's something we're super excited about. We're, we're developing that with Apple right now. And yeah, and there's, there's a, a a bunch of other things that, that I'm really excited to, you know, to hope, hopefully get off the ground.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, I cover development here for THR, and one of the things that I always wonder is when you have a breakout show like this, especially now with the Globe Recognition, are you starting to get more of these incoming calls from, from different outlets that want to work with you? Obviously, you've got the A24 deal, but I hear you've got something in the works at Netflix, and I, I imagine this has done wonders for your career.
4: Yeah, it's been it's been really cool. Yeah, we've we got something going at Netflix that's also with A24, and, and there's a, a few other things that... Um, that I'm really excited to get into. And so for me, it's just making sure to, like, pace it, to make sure that it's coming from a, a really personal and, and um, purposeful place. You know, I, I think, like, it, it can work both ways because on, on, in some ways, like, something new comes out and everyone kind of jumps on it and then you try to, like, maximize at this crazy rate, which is not really my goal. My goal is just, like, what, what's organic, you know? What can I really add value to. And, and I'm really excited to do that. Um, because making things is, is really, um, m- making things that really like help people, it sounds cheesy, but like people that help people feel less lonely, you know, cause that's what our show has been able to do on a level where people watch it and they're like, man, I, I never saw someone like me getting to do that thing. That's really exciting to me. And, and then how can we do it in the coolest, most fucked up way possible (laughs) you know how can we really make people feel less lonely but also be like oh man why would you do that thing with your cousin like 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 how can we cross that line but also help people feel seen and getting to do that with uh you know with stories that I I care about is uh yeah I'm I'm like thrilled I'm I'm, it's it's super cool
0: yeah and as you continue to you know expand into an exec producer and do and do other projects how long do you see your show running do you have a long-term plan for that too
4: you know i think as long as it organically could go and and hopefully they let us you know um make more of them and 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 i think like for me it's 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 really like i've probably always seen it as like a four season maybe five but i think four i think sometimes when things go over that it 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 starts to feel um like a little redundant but our, our original our original window was was kind of like okay we think like Three to four, it'll probably feel good. But I think, like as I've seen some of these other characters, I know we kind of have some more runway. Um, but it, it's whatever, whatever helps it feel organic. It should end like before you think it should end. Is is kind of how I feel. So, um, so I I want to like kind of really you know pace it out and, and make sure that I feel like the character and feel close to him. And and really, there's actually a part of me that would like you know, love to take a like at some point, maybe even take a few years off and then catch up with the character, you know, because there are so many things that that he could go through or might go through. But yeah, it'd be cool to see how it shapes out.
1: And whenever we talk to people, we always like to wrap up the conversation with a standard question, which is what are you actually watching? What what TV do you have time to watch yourself?
4: Oh, man, I'm uh, Hiyama Bess, who plays my mom on my show, is in Succession. (laughs) And they – HBO was just like so, 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 so kind – to, to let her be on our show. Cause I, I literally called them and I was like, there's no one else who could play my mom. I've literally searched the earth. Like I, I, I went and auditioned people in Cairo for two weeks and I was like, man, please just let me have you. I'm a boss. I know, I know people aren't usually supposed to be, you know, regulars in two shows, but, um, that show's amazing. I love succession. It's the only thing I've like had time to like squeeze in to watch. And it, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's really, really, uh, it's pretty addicting. And then like on the movie front i uh i i just saw uncut gems which is it's so amazing i like i'm like upset that i'm not watching it right now like i'm like very happy to talk to you guys but i'm also like i wish i was watching uncut gems uh because i yeah like adam Sandler is just like i saw him that that's actually maybe the coolest thing i was at the gotham awards and adam sandler looked over to me and, and he was like Hey man, you look sharp. It's a good jacket, and I was like, "Holy, sh- this is amazing!" I lost, but I didn't. You know, like we we didn't win the Gotham Award, but I was like, "Dude, Adam Sandler thought my jacket looked good. This is like kid me is flipping out."
1: <laughs> Excellent. Well, we we thank
4: you so much for for joining us today, for fitting in time to chat with us. We really appreciate it. Oh man, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the Twitter follow, Dan. This is huge. <laughs> it's huge, man. It's super fun. <laughs> you need you you need to tweet more, man. <laughs> You know, yeah, it's so funny. I'm, like, not on there, but I'm, like, very happy when someone follows. I'm, like, oh, every time I check in every once in a while, I'm, like, oh, this is dope.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks so much, and congratulations on all the continued success.
4: Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. The first season of
1: Rami is available to binge on Hulu, and we are eagerly awaiting season two sometime in 2020. Number five.
0: As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner.
1: This week, instead of our weekly focus on new programming, we're going to take a look back at the year that was in the critical conversation. Since Leslie isn't a critic, but is still a person with fine and valid opinions, we're pleased to welcome the great Emily Vanderwerf, Vox's critic at large and author of Monsters of the Week, the complete critical companion of the X-Files, to look at the best and possibly worst programming of 2019. Welcome, Emily. Welcome, Emily. It's so great to be here.
0: Well, let, let's start with Fleabag. Is this, hands down, the best show of the year?
5: I thought so for a long time. I no longer have it at number one on my list, but it's certainly a genuinely, I think, a near-perfect TV season. There are small things I would quibble with, but I think it is pretty brilliant, and the way that it continues a story that seemed done um, may become relevant later in this conversation, but I thought it was a really smart way of both expanding the show's world and also staying true to what the show was. You know, it didn't, it didn't go, it, even though it was sort of a romantic comedy, it didn't go way off center. It was, it was very much a fleabag romantic comedy.
1: Now, for those of our listeners who don't know, what ended up sneaking in as your number one show for the year instead?
5: My number one show for the year is Watchmen on HBO. Um, and I actually say in my uh, top 10 that it will hopefully be on Vox by the time you're hearing this. I actually say that, like, probably it's not as perfect a show as several of the other shows in my top ten, but I was obsessed with it in a way that I just wasn't really anything else. Like, it was just everything about it just hit me dead center. And even the stuff that didn't work, I was like, that doesn't work in an interesting way. Like, I was excited by it, so.
1: Well, I remember when we all at Press Tour watched... The pilot, And I know that I walked away with the, okay, this is incredibly ambitious, but it could fall off a cliff at any time in ways that might actually make me irate. And I was tremendously relieved when we actually got additional episodes being like, oh, it's, it's staying on the cliff. It's staying on the cliff. It's staying on the cliff. When did you kind of feel confident that this was going to be the show at the top of your list?
5: I really didn't. Like, as I was writing the list, I was like, you know, I I could make succession first. I could make Fleabag first. Those three I was kind of playing around with. But it's really when I watched the finale, which I don't think is the best episode of the season, but I think is an episode that wraps up that season in interesting, compelling ways. And really, like made me feel, like, just grateful to have had it, to have seen this show and to have been able to watch it. Like, I definitely had the same feeling as you. I actually did a press junket for the show and had seen four episodes. And, like, after I saw those four episodes, I still was like, this could fall apart at any second. I'm having a good time. But, and the fact that it didn't, that it came close many times and never quite went over that cliff is just, like... I'm so impressed by shows that tempt fate like that. Maybe (laughs) overly so, but like, yeah, that that made up my number one.
1: Well, one thing I've been wondering as I've been looking at people's lists is it feels much more than any year I can remember as if there's something resembling a critical consensus, which Mm -hmm. I find remarkable given 600 plus shows, a million people writing about it. But the number of lists that had either Succession at number one or Fleabag, Fleabag or Succession, that then had Watchmen at number five, that then sort of rounded things out with Russian Doll and whatever and whatever. Does it feel that way to you also? And what do you make of that? It does
5: feel that way to me. I think that there being more TV shows has actually made the number of shows we all watch much smaller. (laughs) Like we probably were all keeping up with maybe 25 shows. And that feels like a liberal estimate to me. I watched way less television this year than I did last year. I still watched over... I I did my count, and I still watched just over 100 shows, which is a lot more than most people. But (laughs) like, I
0: watched 100 baseball games (laughs) this year, and that was... (laughs) And maybe, like, 15 shows.
5: Yeah, yeah. And, like, you know, um, that was way down... Like, there have been years when I've been watching 200 shows. That was toward the end of my time at the AV Club I was doing that. And so, like, I've been trending down ever since. But... (laughs) Yeah, like the fact that we have this much smaller base of shows that we're watching, and one of them was Game of Thrones, which I don't think anybody had at the top spot this year. I don't think anybody had that on top of <laughs> like, their list. Did that make any
0: top 10 list? I I'm haven't. sure it's
1: made some yeah. people's top mm-hmm. 10 list. I'm,
5: yeah, some people really love that final season, and that's fine. But like. Name one. Uh Sean T. Collins. Okay. Yeah. TCA member, <laughs> Sean T. Collins.
1: I appreciate that you had the answer at your fingertips. For I don't me.
5: think he had it at number one. Like I but he did really love it. <laughs>
1: um
5: yeah, I, I definitely uh you know, the fact that we were all watching this small group of shows kind of creates this weird consensus. Um and I do think about the years when people were doing the uh, the poll at Hitfix, a site where Dan used to work. And like that critics poll would come out every year. And like the winner would just be the show all of us had it third, you know? (laughs) And like, this is the year when I think probably the winner would be Fleabag if that poll was still running. And it's because like most of us had it at first and those of us who didn't had it at second or third, like... That there was a pretty consensus top three, and then usually people had Russian Doll somewhere in their top five. Like, that is very unusual, but I think it's a symptom of, like, how much television there is.
1: Is it good or bad, though? I need to define if it's a positive or negative thing for our discourse.
5: I think it's fine, you know? <laughs> I These are not, like, it's not like we're all, oh, wildly overpraising shows that, like, don't have stuff worth grappling with in them. If you don't like Fleabag, if you don't like Succession, whatever, that's fine, but, like, you have to, like, come up with a reason you don't like that show. You know, you can't just like reject it out of hand. So I do like that. Are we, we talking to Alan Sepinwall out there somewhere? Hi, Alan Sepinwall. I, I have told him that he should watch season two. Just, just, read, uh, read, <laughs> just read a recap of season one and watch season two. I think he'll like season two a lot more. I'm, you, I'm
0: trying to bribe my wife just to watch the pilot of Succession. Like, and she's just not, not into it. And And I I don't
5: get it. (laughs) The problem is that people think they know what succession is. And the first few episodes think like sort of prove them right. Like certainly it's better than that stereotype of this is a show about rich white people who are horrible. But like, it is that, you know, Yeah. (laughs) and it rises above that. But like, you do have to wade through a few episodes. And I realized there are people like Dan who loved it (laughs) from the first. I liked it from the first, but I didn't start to love it until the end of season one. when I was like, oh, I see what this is doing. And like season two pushed that into full blown obsession.
0: Yeah, just like lean into the crazy a little bit more. Exactly. I mean, bores on the floor. Come
5: on. Yeah. Season two is like, you know, season two is like, okay, basically we are a high gloss version of Dynasty and we're okay with that. And like, perfect.
0: Yeah, Um, One of the things that, that I wonder, you know, you said you watched 100 shows this year. Dan, I know you watch everything and you're a completionist, which makes me just exhausted. But how has this content explosion changed your approach to criticism?
5: I'm doing less of it. You know, I'm doing more essays. I'm doing fewer reviews. I'm doing fewer reviews. I'm doing more essays. I'm doing more think pieces. I'm doing more attempts to put things in larger context beyond like, oh, this was good. This was bad. Like... I recently wrote a review. I'm trying to think of, like, the last review review I wrote, and it was probably Watchmen. And, like, I'm increasingly in a space where also because of my extracurricular activities, which involve a lot of writing of dramatic stuff, I kind of have this problem where, like, I, I, I have to think about, like... Say I sold a TV show tomorrow. Like, this is way off topic, but say I sold a TV show tomorrow. I don't want it to look like I got that because I gave some other show on that network a good review. So I have to be a lot more careful about what I'm doing. So I'm doing a lot more deep dives into shows. But that's also a function of there's too much stuff to watch. And there's too much stuff that I am watching. And, like, I want to cut down on that. Like, I have I have friends and and, <laughs> and a wife and, and cats that I have to pay <laughs> attention to. And, like... Yeah when i was watching all the tv in the world i mean i was a very sad person like uh, another function of this is like now i like have like a psychological makeup that functions so i'm not watching as much television but i definitely am now doing more in the way of big picture essays and less in the way of reviews and i actually my readership has gone up. Like people engage with that more. I've found.
0: Yeah, less is more. Yeah, yeah. you know, for, for my own experience, when in asking part of that that question, because I found that, you know. As these numbers escalate, and I think the forecast is for, to hit 600 in 2020, which mm-hmm. is just, just that's Didn't just Didn't she ultimately scripted. go over 600 I, this I, year?
5: Liz Shannon Miller's count of shows, which includes things like Acorn and BritBox that TV critics don't traditionally pay a ton of attention to, is at 688 right now. And that's scripted only? <laughs> that's scripted only.
0: Scripted only, <sighs> only in primetime or on a streaming service. But like... I've found that you know, given the number of choices available, I'm just watching less. It just feels completely mm-hmm. overwhelming. And I think to come at it from a critical perspective, I can't like I can't fathom Dan, like the fact that you watch shows just for fun. <laughs> no, no, you can just stop like, there.
5: I
1: can't fathom
0: I can't Dan fathom. is a
1: perfectly fine, <laughs> full stop. Uh, I've said that so many times. It's, it's a common perception.
0: Yeah. OK, so looking at the stuff that you guys uh, that you both have seen this year. Who's who's your performer of the year? Is there a, a worst show of the year? What's your favorite episode of the year? What, what are some of the ones that made made your lists or things that Those you didn't have a space for? Very different things,
1: Leslie. Yeah. yeah, but there's
0: a lot. You know, look, this is a direction. year. This is a year in review show, Dan. Point
1: us in the direction of one of them, and then we'll both answer. Well, you,
0: you pick. I mean, d- did you have a? Okay, favorite?
1: my episode of the year is the Fleabag premiere. That episode. Oh, yeah. it, that episode, I watch it over and over again, and it is such a perfect example of a half hour of dramatic, comedic, single-set writing, it is remarkable to me. And and how well it's directed, how every performance works, how it defines characters, how it brings you back into the world, that to me is as good a piece of half-hour television as it's possible to make. That yeah. is my episode of the year.
5: It's absolutely a tremendous piece of comedic writing and comedic directing, comedic acting. Um, I really loved it. Uh, I do think uh, probably my number one would be that episode six of Watchmen, the one that dives into the past of Hooded Justice and sort of attempts to recontextualize the superhero genre as a story about race in America and somehow doesn't go totally off the rails and like lose me, that that episode of television exists and works and is actually genuinely great is like a weird miracle to me. Uh, My runner up would probably be Turnhaven, the uh, succession episode where they all go to Cherry Jones' house and then (laughs) Cherry Jones is just like mean to them. I love it. Perfect.
1: That was great. In a season of people sitting around a dinner table being actively aggressive and passively aggressive, that was the best of the people being horrible to each other, dinners in the succession season. It also
5: contains Matthew McFadden saying, ah, spinach, king of edible leaves, which, you know, (laughs) (laughs) how can you argue with that?
1: You really can't.
5: What about your favorite individual performances of the year? Uh, Mine was Michelle Williams in Fosse Verdon. That was actually, you know, the thing we were talking about where everybody has the same top three and then Russian Doll somewhere in their top five. My rounded up my top five with Fosse Verdon, which I didn't see a lot of people doing, but I thought that was tremendous television. And so much of it was grounded in Michelle Williams. There's, There's a moment in that show's penultimate episode when her character Gwen Verdon has had throat surgery, and she can't talk, and Bob Fosse calls her to give her bad news he knows she wants to react to, and you just watch her, and then she starts rasping, and I've never seen an actress, like, both the physical demands of the performance, but also just, like, the emotional demands of, like, getting to that space, staying in that space of fury, and then having, like, maybe 5% of your voice to work with, just... I was blown away by it. I was blown, blown away by her every week. But like um, she ran the table on awards with that role and it, it totally justified, it, in my opinion.
1: And ran the table on awards for that show in a year where there were completely legitimate other contenders, yes, exactly. where Patricia Arquette could have been a fully worthy contender and won a couple words for things that, you know, when it was when it was before Fosse Verdon had come out. But, you know, Amy Adams, the fact that Amy mm-hmm. Adams ended up getting nothing for Sharp Object. she was tremendous. In, yeah. in which she was really wonderful is amazing to me. Uh, yeah, the, and the the penultimate episode of Fosse Verdon was for me easily the best of that season. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was hit and miss on it the whole time. Never was hit and miss on Michelle Williams. She was always great, but that episode was was terrific. I, I tend to, you know, when I look at the sort of performances of the year, I tend to lean towards the, the multi-hyphenates because there were so many who had these remarkable years, whether it was Phoebe Waller-Bridge. I
0: want to guess who yours is. Obvious. No, go ahead, guess, because you're wrong. Rami. Rami.
1: Rami is definitely in the conversation because because Rami Yusuf was writer, director, and star and excelled in all three capacities, but so did Natasha Lyonne on Russian Doll. So did Bill Hader on Barry, who I think had a couple just amazing episodes as actor, amazing episodes as director, amazing episodes as writer. I think there's a lot of impressive stuff happening for people who are wearing a lot of hats, and that's impressive to me and speaks to... You know, how the how the industry is working, that people are being able to say, you know, I'll do eight episodes of this. I'll do 10 episodes, but I'm going to write them all or I'm going to direct them all or whatever. I think it's a direction we're heading.
5: (laughs) Who's your number one? Yeah,
1: it might be Bill Hader, which is sort of strange, but, uh, but it would depend on the minute. I would say Bill Hader is probably close because. To me, I already respected him as a writer, I already respected him as an actor, I already respected him as a director, and to me, he raised his game on each one of those levels in the second season of Barry, which didn't even make my top ten as a series, which yeah. so, you know, it's so strange. There are so many options, so many boxes to check as you're looking at the year's best.
5: My runners-up are Natasha Lyonne and, and Bill Hader, and then uh, probably, uh, probably Regina King, who I thought oh. was fantastic, and just like... I knew she could play every emotion and I knew she could, you know, do the physical superhero stuff. I didn't know she could do them both at once and like that was
1: phenomenal. And I'm s- still vaguely irate that we have started the award season with multiple groups not nominating for yeah. things. That she didn't get a Golden Globe nomination or a SAG Award nomination is just ridiculous to me. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so we've talked about all of the great TV from 2019 let's wrap the segment with the the polar opposite what were some of the worst shows of the year dan do you want to start with the island
1: If you take away the excitement of my saying what the worst thing on TV was this year, yes, The Island was the worst thing that I watched this year. And yet I dedicated a whole weekend to it.
0: I got that right. That was just a guess.
1: (laughs) No, no, no. The the Island was the worst thing on TV this year. It it simply was. It was astonishing. And I am looking forward to someday getting the full explanation of what that show was. By the
0: way, still waiting word on its fate. Hasn't been renewed. Hasn't been canceled yet.
1: I've... I've been assured that more people than you would want to think watched it, watched it, that it, it, you know, whatever the hell that means, given Netflix. But no, that that to me is a show where someday Neil LaBute will sit down for a interview and will give a full explanation of the tax status of that show and where the money went. And it will be this grand revelation that it was, a scheme in some way and I don't know what the scheme was. You know, maybe the money was all being fil- uh, funneled into Trump's re-election campaign or something. I want to know what the answer is because I'm sure it is totally nefarious and I'm excited by that prospect. What was the worst thing you watched this year, Emily?
5: I actually, because of my slow ramping down, I haven't watched a lot of terrible TV, but I did watch a couple episodes of C on Apple TV Plus and that there was is. pretty rancid. <laughs> I was successfully warned away from the island by yourself and uh, Catherine Van Arendonk. Um, even though I had this like curiosity thing where I was like, should I
1: watch this? Oh, half of the people on Twitter, as Catherine and I that weekend were watching it, Catherine doing wonderful jobs of making gifts for mm-hmm. every moment I needed her to. So bless her for that. Uh, but half of the responses we were both getting on Twitter were, I didn't want to watch this, but now you have me perversely curious. And then 45 minutes with people were like, yeah, this isn't even bad fun. This is just unbearable. Thanks.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and I can contend that reading your tweets and, re- and your very excellent critics notebook about the show was probably as more, far more entertaining than actually watching said show.
5: So what else? C was actually kind of the worst because it was not just bad, but also boring. It was and expensive. just like, actively, it was actively like, we can make good TV if we throw money at it, right? And like, <laughs> very much proved that you cannot do that. I do also want to mention, I don't actually think this is the worst show of the year, but I think it was probably the most misguided, um, almost family on Fox oh. about the woman who discovers that her father uh, was acting as a sperm donor and she has hundreds and hundreds of siblings. And it's treated as a premise for a quirky comedy. In Instead of, you know, a legitimate uh, sexual
1: crime. You already made it sound uh, more charming than the the actual yeah. action is. Her father was acting as a sperm donor is not the same as her father illicitly right, 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 right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> impregnating women without their permission, consent or telling them. So, yes. yeah. And, <laughs> and it's
5: treated as a story of like, can I ever forgive my dad? And
1: yeah. Should not have. And look at me. I, this may have been a horrible thing, but I got sisters. Yeah. <laughs> no that was not a good show. Anything else you got on the bad front?
5: You know, there are a bunch of shows this year that like Game of Thrones where I was (laughs) like, that was, that was a, I don't think it was a bad season. Like I probably on the Vox scale of five stars, I'd probably give it three stars. You know, I thought it was fine. Like enough of it worked where I was like, okay, but it was such a huge come down from what that show could be, what that show had been. You know, I felt similarly about, I actually kind of felt season three of the Handmaid's Tale righted itself, but in the middle there, it was a mess. And like, so there were that's a lot where of I shows I got
1: bogged down. I need yeah. to. Uh...
5: There were a lot of shows I watched where I was like, yeah, this just kind of lost the plot. And they were often among my favorites. And that that
0: made me that made me feel sad. Yeah. So well, that's
1: a good place to end things. Yeah. Well,
0: no, let's end it on a good <laughs> note instead. So, you know, look, we're off for two weeks. This is our last episode of the year. If you were going to recommend our listeners to watch one show over the holiday break, what's your what's your pick? You first, Emily. Oh, boy. Um, I mean, any
5: of the shows we've talked about here would be great, but I do think I want to throw out a special commendation for Lodge 49 on AMC, which made my top 10 and was badly and brutally canceled and now will not be revived. The creator has said they couldn't sell it elsewhere, but it's such a lovely little show and it has a very... It's December 27th. I don't have to go to work, and I just want to sit in my chair. It is a perfect show for that, especially if you're somewhere cold, because it has a very summery feel. It's going to, like, sort of make you feel good. It's about two people who uh, sort of go on a quest, and uh, it's set in a fraternal order, sort of like the Masons in Long Beach, California. But actually, it's about the demise of capitalism, so...
1: (laughs) And let's see, I've been telling you for, I don't know, nine months to watch Rami. So let's say I'm not going to do that this time. I'm going to say if you actually want to watch something pleasant over the holidays... Watch Dairy Girls if you haven't yet. It oh, is yeah. just it is just such a happy, good show. And uh, yes, it's about the troubles, but good gracious, it's also about this wonderful cast and this wonderful group of characters who are really just a total pleasure to spend 30 minutes at a time with. So, you know, if unless you're looking for something, you know, unless you're looking to spend Christmas watching Unbelievable Chernobyl and When They See Us, which would be a totally different mood to want to set... I say Dairy Girls.
5: Sounds like a Vanderwerf Christmas right there. (laughs) Just like we're going to, I'm having some friends over. We're just going to watch Chernobyl. That's what we're (laughs) going to do.
0: (laughs) Happy holidays. Well, Emily, thank you so much for joining us. It was so great to be here. Well, that feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's top five, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. We will be back January 3rd with a special 2020 preview and a showrunner spotlight with Amy Lippman of Freeform's new take on Party of Five.
1: Don't forget to subscribe to us on all of your favorite podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a review. It helps spread the word of mouth. We are always happy to hear from you on the Twitter. If you have questions, you can ask us on Twitter, but also for future mailbag segments, you can email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. It's been a great year, Leslie. It's been a pleasure podcasting with you. And until next year.
0: Dan, Happy New Year. It's been an absolute pleasure. Merry holidays. Happy Hanukkah. I look forward to spending part of the break, chatting your ear off about what we're watching. And like I said, thank you to all of our loyal listeners for a very, very fun year filled with your support. Thank you. It is
3: Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?